This is Adam Hill, Minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. Today is a great day to study the Bible. As you listen to today's message, I pray that you're blessed as we study God's Word together. Please remain standing. We're going to start by reading the Word of God together, and it's our tradition to stand and honor the reading of the Word of God, the authority of God. From Psalm chapter 23, at this point uh, in the series, if you know it, you may say it along with me or you can read it off the screen with me, but we're going to read Psalm 23 together. The Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to meditate on your word, to learn together, and to listen to you. Father, I pray today that you will speak, for your children are listening. Help us to grow and walk closer and closer in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been talking about how God has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And we've been talking about how there is a battle for our mind that is going on. And if the enemy can win the battle for your mind, then the enemy can win the battle for your life. Okay, I want to start by talking about Numbers 13. Now, that's not a text you hear a lot in a lot of sermons. We're not like, hey, Numbers 13. I'm sure I'm familiar with what's in that. But Numbers 13 is actually a story you probably know better than you realize is in Numbers 13. It happens to do that, it happens to be that God has set free the children of Israel from Egypt. They have marched towards the promised land, and now they stand right on the edge of the promised land. God has provided for them manna and quail. The promises of God that have motivated and inspired generations of their faithful are now coming to fruition right in front of their eyes. What a time to be alive. And before they head into the promised land, God has them send 12 spies to take a look at it, to see if what he said about it was true, to see if what he was providing for them was up to standard. The spies return and they all agree on one thing. The land is incredible. Everything's great. It is rich agriculturally. It is, it is rich in a lot of ways. They're excited about it. They even bring back, if you remember, there's some fruit they bring back, and it takes two of them to carry this cluster of grapes. They are excited about what God has in store for them. All of them agree that the land and the blessing that God has promised them is worth it and is good. The thing they don't agree on is whether or not they can take that land. 
10 of the 12 have a different thought. They say, mm, the cities are fortified and the people look big and strong. As a matter of fact, and if you look in verses 31 and 33 of Numbers chapter 13, they say, uh, we saw them and the, uh, we can't attack those people because they're stronger than we are. Okay, they're stronger than us. And then in verse 33, as a matter of fact, they say, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. Now, uh, Nephilim is the same word that's translated giants in other places. Okay, like Goliath kind of thing. Goliath and is a descendant of Anak. And so there's some big, strong, mean-looking people there. We seemed like, look at the way they end that, though. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. They, saw, they thought so, too. How do they know that? How do they know that that's what the people living there thought? Did they ask them, hey, take a look at us. Measure us up. What do you think? If there were several hundred thousand of us, you still think we're weak? Yeah, okay, us too. Sounds good. Like, how do they know? They're filling in the blanks. A seed had been planted into their mind by the enemy. By their true enemy. And rather than throwing it out, they tended the seed. And they let it grow in their mind. And then they acted on it. And as a result, they wouldn't enter the promised land. And they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They let doubt grow and fester. And they never got to taste the promises that God had for them. Now, here's, here's the truth about this story. It didn't have to end that way for them. And it doesn't have to end that way for us either. Victory. If we talk about wanting to see victory, victory is about examining the seeds that get scattered in our mind and making sure that the unhealthy seeds, the seeds of doubt, the seeds of shame, the seeds of hate, the seeds of sin, that all of those don't get a chance to take root. We must tend the garden of our mind and uproot all of the thoughts that do not coincide with the heart of God. You ever had any of the following thoughts? I'm not worth very much. No one loves me. Not really. They say they love me, but what they mean is they like the way I make them feel. No one believes in me. I've just been hurting a lot, and I'll feel a lot better if I just yield to this nagging temptation. I don't know that the gospel really works. I deserve to be as bitter and as angry as I feel, and you can't take that from me. I am my failure. I am my addiction. I will never change and I will always be this way. We've talked in previous weeks about how all of these thoughts, thoughts like that, when you sit down and you hear them and you examine them, if you look into the eyes of Jesus, do you think that those thoughts come from God? No. Your good shepherd would never say those words to you. So where are those thoughts coming from? Your enemy. 
Okay, that, that, that when, when the good shepherd talks to you, he doesn't tell you you're a, fa- you're a failure or you're worthless or that you should be racked with guilt or worry. He provides clarity, not chaos. He provides green pastures, not dry wastelands of anxiety. If fear and worry and temptation and feelings of worthlessness and confusion are in your life, then guess what? The enemy has shown up and is trying to pull a table up, uh, trying to pull a chair up to the table that God has placed for you. He is dropping seeds into your your thinking. And our thought life is a sacred ground that we must protect. Proverbs 23, 7 says uh, that as a person thinks in their heart, so they are. This is why the gospel emphasizes the change of identity that's taken place in our lives when we submitted them to Christ. Okay, a pastor I know says Jesus is already in the story of victory. And he's invited you into this story with him. And so our story changes, our, our own self-understanding, our identity changes. I'm no longer, I am a sinner saved by grace, and I am a new creation. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I don't have to give in to sin. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. Christ has all the victory, and I have victory too. God is always faithful. He will always provide a way out. I can always take the way out that he provides. Filling your life with truths like this will change your mind. All 12 spies agreed that the land was abundantly good. They all saw the amazing produce and the richness of the place. But 10 of them doubted that place was one meant for them. You understand that the stakes are high? This is your life we're talking about. Your present, your right now, and your future. Your family, your sanity, your peace, your calling. This is about everything God desires for you to be and to have. The word for victory that's used in the New Testament is nikos. N-I-K-O-S, nikos. Uh, it's actually the root for that, that a shoe company took their name from. Uh, Nike in Greek, but as we say it, Nike. means victory. Okay? There's even a statue of winged victory, and it's Nike or Nike. All right? That, that's how we come into that word in our everyday lives. All right, Nico specifically, when it's used in the New Testament, refers to the victory that's come about due to conquest. And it describes the conquest that's been completed and carried out on our behalf by Christ. He has provided for us victory over sin and death. Okay, that's important for us to realize because there's two things there that I need you to remember. First is that victory is not something that you or I do. The gospel is that Jesus has won the victory in himself. Okay? Victory is not something you or I do. Jesus has won the victory. And second, because believers are in Christ and Christ is in believers, this victory is given to us. We can claim this victory not because I won it, but because I know Christ and Christ is mine. 
The powers of sin and darkness cannot prevail over any believer because Jesus said on the cross in John 19.30, it is finished. So picture yourself standing on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day plus one. Now, D-Day took place on June 6, 1944. D-Day plus one is the day after. So June 7th, 1944 is known as D-Day plus one. D-Day was the largest amphibious invasion in military history. As more than 156,000 Allied troops stormed their way onto the beaches of Normandy, pushing through a hail of Nazi machine gun fire, grenades, firepower, over 6,900 ships, 3,100 aircraft, and 450,000 tons of ammunition were involved in the D-Day invasion. Casualties were heavy, and more than 4,400 Allied troops gave their life on that day. Yet by nightfall, the victory had been won on all five of the beaches of Normandy, codenamed Gold, Utah, Juneau, Omaha, and Sword. And over the next days and weeks and months, more and more troops would come ashore through the temporary harbors that were constructed there. Within a year, the Allies would unload more than 2.5 million troops. 500,000 vehicles and 4 million tons of supplies through the harbors at Normandy. Historians agree that D-Day marked the decisive turning point in the war. And that because of D-Day, the outcome of the war shifted dramatically and decisively. The destiny of the entire war, the entire world, had changed with that victory. So imagine you're there on June 7th, D-Day plus one. You're standing on the beaches just hours removed from the carnage and the battle. The overall war has been decided. Hitler's stranglehold on the continent has been broken and his western front is failing and there is no way he can win the war now. From this beachhead of victory, there is nothing the enemy can do to stop the advance of his defeat. So why did they keep going? Because even though the war in Europe was decided, Hitler will still operate from a place of defeat for a while. That even though he's ultimately been defeated, he will keep fighting. And if your enemy keeps fighting, you need to keep up your efforts as well. In the next few weeks, there are still going to be battles and skirmishes. You will fight in the town of Carrington. You will capture the port of Charbourg. You will stand, you will still need to liberate Paris on August 25th. And some of those fights are going to be intense and bloody. And over the next year, you'll pay the cost of victory in the battle of Operation Market Garden. And hold the wintry line at the Battle of the Bulge. All my history majors are getting excited. You will still need to push your way into Nazi-occupied Germany and liberate horrific concentration camps. 
On D-Day plus one, you have to wrap your mind around this truth. Even though the war has been won, some of your toughest fighting is yet to come. Even though the war has been won, some of your toughest fighting is yet to come. Because the beachhead has been established though, the fighting that you have in front of you comes from a place of victory. Okay, I want to make sure they heard me, Doug. This was important. Even though you've won, the battle is decided, there's still fighting in front of you. But because of the beachhead that was established, all of the fighting you still have in front of you comes from a place of victory. The battle that you're doing is coming from a place of victory, not from a place of doubt. In your spiritual life, know that Jesus has given us the victory and the accomplished work of his cross and his empty tomb. He has established a beachhead of victory for us so that all the life that we live is living from the blessing of the victory. We get confused because we think, Angelo, that I've got to live for the blessing rather than thinking I'm living from the blessing. But God's already won the victory. I've got the beachhead. All my fighting is happening because I have the victory. I can still fight. That's the life that we live. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to spend some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to start in verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as this world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Every, Every believer needs to underline that in their Bible. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take, every, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The weapons we fight with have divine power. With the full armor of God. Okay, the righteousness that we have in Christ, the full gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer. With the full armor of God, we can demolish anything that sets itself up against God, even the harmful thoughts in our own minds. You see, there are two truths at work here. One, Christ has done all the work. Don't lose sight of that. Christ is the victor. Christ has done all the work. Amen? Amen. Second, that in Christ, I have been given the opportunity to move forward, fighting in power. The power comes from Christ. The victory comes from Christ. Yet I have to step up and take responsibility for my mind to hold the victory and destiny that awaits me. And so I have a role to play. I'm not passive. I have a role to play in taking captive every thought. 
And here's how we do that. Okay, it's, it, it, it's, it's not difficult to understand. It is often difficult to do. Okay, but here's the first step. First step in taking every thought and, and, and captive and winning the battle for our mind is first, we have to see the lie. See the lie. Identify any deceptive thought in your mind. This seems really basic, but it is essential. And sometimes it's where people skip this step because it seems so basic. And it's sort of like the easy arithmetic and a difficult math problem is where you often make your mistakes because you didn't write that part out because it was so easy. All right. See the lie. Okay, if the first, if the thought when you have it, if at first blush you realize the thought that you're having is not compatible with what God has said and shown us in Christ, then that thought didn't come from God. And it has to get out. When I first see the thought, when I first think it in my mind, if that thought isn't compatible with the word of God or the example of Christ, then it's out. I can't keep it. Okay, the first thing I have to do is see the lie. The second thing I have to do is bind that thought in, in Jesus' name. I'm supposed to take thoughts captive. When you take something captive, you arrest it. You seize it. You put it into custody. You detain it so that it can't harm you or anyone else. And I know we're not the most expressive group. Kenny, you're working on it, and I appreciate it. I appreciate I, I've needed a fellow soldier in the battle, so I appreciate that. And I know I might lose some of you here because it just sounds a little too expressive. But here's what I want. That's right. Spirit fingers here. Here we go. When you encounter the thought and you recognize it is not from God, I want you to pray, God Almighty, I bind this thought in the name of Jesus Christ. I take captive this thought because you commanded me to. And I'm using the power that's available to me because of the Holy Spirit. And with that power, I'm choosing to live in agreement with you. This thought is taken captive. This thought holds no power over me because I belong to you, not it. All right? That, that I want you to say the prayer... To bind that thought in the name of Jesus. Because here, here's the deal. Prayer is made to God. But I think it's good for the devil and his angels to hear Christians pray. Amen. Why in Jude when Michael says I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. Why are we rebuking Satan in Jesus' name? Because the power doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus, who has all power and authority, Matthew 28, 18. And because whatever I do in word or deed, I do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 3, 17. When a thought is obedient to Christ, it either, it, it, it aligns with Christ. 
And if it's not obedient to Christ, it's rejected by Christ and God's teaching found in Scripture. And if I don't take a thought captive in Jesus' name, that thought will take me captive. I bind the thought or the thought in time will bind me. In Gethsemane, as Jesus faced his, 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 the greatest challenge, the reality of betrayal, his coming arrest and persecution, and the shadow of his cross loomed so large that his prayers were accompanied with an anguish so great, he sweat drops of blood. So heavy was that moment that three times, read the Gospel of Matthew and check me, three times Jesus asks that this cup will pass from him. that he wouldn't have to endure it. In preparation for the greatest thing that's ever been done, Jesus was going through the greatest testing first. That's a whole other sermon, but if you want to do great things for God, you better believe that there is a time of testing coming. Here, right before the greatest thing that's ever going to happen, Jesus is undergoing this amazing time of testing, and ultimately Jesus surrendered his own struggle with bearing our sin to make us holy, even Jesus took his thoughts and made them obedient to God, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And even in the strongest temptation and struggle, Jesus did not sin because he took his thoughts captive. That's the example. That's the model. So first, see the lie. Second, Take it, bind it in Christ. Take it captive in Christ. Third thing, change the narrative. Okay, the third thing is change the narrative. Change the trajectory of your story by exchanging the deceptive thoughts of the enemy for the thoughts of truth found in the Word of God. Renew your mind to the truth. Set your mind on that truth. Remind yourself often and watch God set you free. Let me explain what I mean. Psalm 119 and verse 11 tells me to store up God's word in my heart so that I might not sin. Joshua 1.8 tells me to never let God's word depart from me, but to meditate on it all the time. Colossians 3.16 tells me that God's word, to let God's word dwell in me richly. Matthew 4.4 says that I'm to live by God's word like it is the food for my life. Hebrews 4.12 describes God's word as living and active. John 15.7 says that I'm to let God's word abide in me. Deuteronomy 11.18-20 encourages me to put scripture in my heart and mind, binding it on my chest and my forehead to tell my children about it and talk about it at home and when I'm away, thinking through scripture when I lie down and when I rise up. Psalm 19.7 says that I am to dwell in scripture because it helps restore my soul. Psalm 119.32 encourages me to run in the pathways of God's commands for he sets my heart free. Step four. Go on the offensive. See the lie. Bind it in Christ. Change the narrative. 
go on the offensive. It is easy, having done the first three, to not do the last one, and what we end up doing is we end up slipping and falling back. That, that I identify lies, I bind them in Jesus' name, I devote myself to Scripture, but then I'm tempted to return back to my former way of life. That the past always looks better in hindsight than it did when you were living through it the first time. After the children of Israel were liberated from Egypt and their slavery there, this amazing thing happens. In Numbers 11, that's two different references to Numbers in the same sermon. First off, you're welcome. All right. But in Numbers 11, here's what happens. They actually start to wish they could go back. And they've got this amazing, it's this, it's this hilarious part of scripture because they're talking to themselves and said, they're, they're t- what it is is they're tired of manna, God's perfect food that, prov- that he provides for them that they don't have to work for. They get tired of that. And, and they get tired of the quail. And so they decide, we're, you know what I miss? Oh, you know, it was great. And, and you can read it. These are actual words in the Bible. We had cucumbers and melons and leeks, and onions, and garlic. Look, I like onions as much as I, maybe, the, maybe more than the next guy. And garlic's good. And cucumbers are awesome. Melons are in, and, and leeks I am not really sure if I've eaten, but that's fine, they're probably good too. But are any of those worth your freedom? I mean, they really like onions. It's that laughable. That they're talking about how they wish they could go back. Because man, wasn't the food good when we were slaves? It's so easy to slip backwards. Philippians 4.8 offers a way forward. That instead of slipping backwards, we can, we can start to march forward in the battle for our minds. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When I ask you to look at that list of words, leave that list up there. When I ask you to look at that verse and I want you to say to yourself, what do I have in my life that reminds me of these things? What's the true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy things in my life? Take some inventory real quick. We got some time. This is church, so the easy answer is Jesus. Jesus fits the criteria. How many of you have thought maybe my salvation? Thinking about my salvation, okay, yeah. Came to my mind. Many of you thought my family, my children, things, yeah, my spouse, things I'm profoundly thankful for. My preacher, amen. (laughs) Parishioner of the week, right over there. Um, Here's the deal. How would it change your life? How would it change the narrative of your life 
to think about this for five minutes first thing every morning. Or maybe spread it out and take one thought per day of something that fits this criteria. Maybe on Monday you say Isaiah 43, 1 to yourself, God knows my name. And then on Tuesday, Deuteronomy 31, 8, my God goes before me. On Wednesday, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Thursday, Romans 8, 18, my present suffering pales in comparison to my future glory. Friday, no weapon that's formed against me will prosper, Isaiah 54, 17. Saturday, I am a child of God, Romans 8, 16. Sunday, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me, Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. Amen? Amen. If you start your day right there, you are not simply playing defense anymore. You have moved into the offensive where you are marching forward from that place of victory that Christ established and saying, this is my identity, this is my narrative, this is who I am. I live in this place so that when the lie comes at you, it is so much easier to see. That Satan has a harder and harder time trying to pull his seat up to your table because you are constantly reminding yourself of the truth of God. And you are putting that in your heart, putting that in your mind. Kenny, go ahead and bring your team up. We've been singing and talking about victory today. Do you believe that you'll see a victory? Do you believe that in Christ, Christ has won the victory? And that in Christ, we share in that victory? I've got like five committed, convicted Christians right now. If I get 12, I can turn the world upside down. I know that. Do you believe that Christ has won the victory? Do you believe that you are his and he is yours? And maybe you say, I want to be. How do, how do I make sure that I'm in Christ? Confess with your tongue and be baptized into Christ. You will be his and he'll be yours. And that doesn't mean be perfect. It means be available and be willing to follow. It means submitting yourself to him and saying, I trust in you. And he'll lead you. Winning the battle for my mind starts with the truth. And only Jesus has the words of truth. The question is, will you listen to him? Will you join him? Will you walk with him on the path to victory? Thank you for listening to the Rochester Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Our hope is that it was a blessing to you. If you would like someone to study with or pray with, do not hesitate to reach out to us through our website, rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and you are chosen.